Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. My guests today, Andy Berliner and Amy Berliner Ricafrente, the namesake of Amy's Kitchen, found themselves at the helm of a multi-million dollar business somewhat unexpectedly. When Andy and his co-founder, Rachel, founded the business in 1987, the goal is to sustain themselves and pass something along to their children. And the business has found success by sticking to a commitment to keep the company private in an effort to preserve its focus on organic and high quality food. This ethos has paid off over the years as the company expanded into frozen foods and opened a fast food chain with organic, gluten-free, and vegan options, culminating in its recognition as a B Corp in late 2020. Andy and Amy, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you. Thank you. Two amazing human beings. I'm so happy to have you on the show. So Andy, I actually want to start with you because I'm pretty sure Amy was not there at the founding. I was there. I was just in utero. You were in utero. You were in like good thoughts and spirits and good vibes. And here you are today. I'm going to get to you in a sec. Off air, I was saying like, it's just amazing to have a father-daughter team. I love this. I love everything about it. Besides being kind of like adorable, it just feels right and it feels good. But Andy, tell me about the start. So the start was, I think it was a vegetable pot pie. That was the first product. The idea from Amy's came, well, my wife, Rachel, was pregnant with Amy. And about seven months into her pregnancy, she was told, she strained a muscle and was told to stay in bed and asked me to cook dinner. And I was very good at boiling water and maybe steaming vegetables, but that was about it. So I went to the natural food store to see what there was. And we bought a few, there was one door frozen at the time. And I brought home some food. It wasn't organic, but it was natural. And it was horrible. So we thought, gosh, there have to be other people like ourselves that would like organic, good tasting convenience meals sometimes when they don't have time to cook. And that's kind of where the idea sprung from. And you're both at the time and still are vegetarians. Yeah, Rachel had been a vegetarian since... She was 16. 16, and uh, had an organic garden in her backyard in Compton, California when she was 10. I had been a vegetarian for about 10 years at that time. My daughter, who's almost 17, claims she's a vegetarian except for when she eats bacon. It's the hardest thing to give up. That evening, though, you didn't make the vegetable pot pie, right? No, at the time, we looked at what was very popular in frozen food in conventional stores, and... I grew up eating Swanson's pot pies, turkey and chicken pies. And we thought, well, there must be people out there that would love to eat a pot pie again, but, you know, with organic and vegetarian and good ingredients. So that was our first product. And it was a success right away. For someone who has really, to your own admission, no experience beyond boiling water and maybe grilling, maybe, how did you come to make something that was not just good, good for you? tasty, delicious, but also commercially viable. Like, how did that happen? You were making it sound easy. It couldn't have been that easy. Yeah, like talked about how Yunani and everyone was in the barn trying different recipes. And so we decided on the pot pie would be the first product. Rachel's mom, Ellie, who's now 90 years old and still very active, worked on the recipe. She didn't know how to make the sauce. So Amy's uncle Joel and I would sneak by and put a little more butter in the kettle every time we were preparing for a show. And when we first introduced the product, it really wasn't very good. But people loved the concept. And we were staying with some friends of Rachel's. And she was a great cook. And she knew about what chicken flavoring would be like. And 
She taught me how to season it. And then I had an assistant, a secretary, so to speak, that her husband was a great cook. He taught me how to make a roux. Maybe three months after we kind of started talking about it, and they actually showed it at a show, and we're already working on the packaging, we developed the final product. What were you doing from a career standpoint, you and your wife, before this? I was in between things. I had had a tea company called Magic Mountain Herb Teas that kind of disappeared after I sold it, which has been a big motivation to keep this company private. We just asked questions. You know, I asked people how to install kettles. He just called up people, like big names in the industry, and asked them, how do I do this? I called Swanson's or Banquet. I can't remember one of the two. And I asked them if I could talk to someone who could tell me how to make a pot pie. That's just crazy. It's just so funny because... (laughs) So many folks have had in this podcast, similar story in that they had no domain expertise, no knowledge of the industry that they're now successful in, but their response typically is, well, I just Googled it. But your form of Google was a phone, which is the original, the OG way of learning and trying to figure out how to do things, right? The receptionist or whoever answered the phone said, well, let me connect you to engineering. And these guys are engineers. They said, oh, and they told me every step they go through, which we didn't do it the same way, but I learned a lot. And then just a lot of people helped. I'd ask the kettle company how to install kettles. We did everything. We built our own freezers, built our own refrigerators. Just hard he work. He carried and the cheese sauce in the back of the pickup truck. And then what happened? Oh, that's the mac and cheese story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a different story. <laughs> I want to get to the mac and cheese story, but what was the company called before it was called Amy's? I ask only because did you already know you were going to have a girl and call Amy, Amy, as well as the company, Amy's Kitchen? We didn't have a name. We went through a lot of names, healthy this, green fields, you know, and everything sounded the same to us. And then one night, Amy's grandmother, Ellie, who I mentioned, woke up with a dream. You're doing this for Amy. Why not name it after Amy? By this time, Amy was, we had been working on it, but now Amy was born and had a name. She was born in November and we started making the products in February. We started three months later. I love that. And I love that Ellie's 90. So my mom's 90, born in 1931. So that's just a blessing. That's awesome. That is so great. She grew up near Coney Island. That's just terrific. That's amazing. All right. So then you name it Amy's. You have this one product to start, the vegetable pot pie that tastes kind of like chicken, but it's not chicken. And how did you get the word out? There was no internet. It was old school marketing. I'm sure you know you produced some for locally, but did you go store to store? Like, how did you actually get scale and get momentum and acceleration for at least that first product before you expanded? We did a local trade show that was small. Then we did the big national health food show. had a different name then. And Amy attended it. She was three months old at her first trade show. Amy, how'd you do? She nursed a lot. She did really well. Yeah, just just (laughs) nursing the whole time, apparently. At that age, your job is just to be like super cute. Yeah. Which is helpful. Like babies sell. You were selling at three months old. Yeah. My job is just to be a super cute mascot. And my job hasn't changed that much. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought about it, but she probably was a big reason that people were coming by the booth to see the baby. Babies and puppies. That's all you need. Was this like Expo West or something? It was the precursor to to Expo Expo West. It wasn't called that yet. Aren't you impressed that I have that knowledge? That's pretty good that I knew that, right? That's pretty good. I'm impressed, yeah. Mm -hmm. People loved the concept. It didn't taste that good yet, but they were just so excited that an organic vegetable pot pie was available that everybody ordered it, everyone that came by the booth. And within three months, 
It was in stores all over the country. Rachel's dad used to drive across the country once a year because he's from the East Coast and stopped at all these little towns along the way. He said, the Popeye was in every store I stopped in. It was one of those things that was meant to happen. It was like people were waiting for it. And you asked, like, what did we do? There was no internet for marketing. We didn't even really have a marketing department until fairly recently. It was eight years before we had a sales department. But and we still have a bar- barely, we don't have a big marketing budget and we don't do advertising because one, we don't have the margins for it. And two, our goal has always been to provide a product that people really need rather than trying to convince people to buy a product that they don't need. And so if it's something people actually want, you don't actually have to work that hard to get people to buy it. And for years, one of the biggest hurdles to living a vegetarian life was having access to food that provides sustenance, but it's also sustainable and it tastes good, right? And there's a lot of variety, all that stuff. Yeah, our products have always lived on, because organic was not that big of a thing when we started. Our food always tasted better than everyone else's and that's been the key to our success and still is today. And do you think that vegan and veganism is the next kind of vegetarianism in that there are up until recently even greater hurdles to all those things I just talked about, because there's a lot of people who want to lead a plant-based life, as you know. I've tried it. I watched Game Changers. I committed to having two out of three meals every day being plant-based, which is a good start because I can't just go from like, cut it out immediately. And the reality is that over 90% of our consumers, the people who buy Amy's are not vegetarian or vegan or plant-based. They're me, basically. They're people who are trying to reduce a little bit or just, I mean, a lot of people don't even realize we're a vegetarian company. They're more interested in it from the health perspective or just the taste and the convenience perspective. It has never been about just providing for vegetarians or vegans. It's always been about providing this option to everyone who wants it or needs it. It's so interesting you say that because years ago, I remember being in Whole Foods and I accidentally picked up a vegan gluten-free muffin. I'm pretty sure there's both those things in the same muffin. And I remember thinking, this is so delicious. It's just a regular blueberry muffin. And I didn't realize that it was gluten-free and vegan. And I'm like, huh, I don't have to sacrifice anymore. Like really, really good taste and getting that umami or that satisfaction that you get from eating. Cause that's one thing that we all human beings love to do is like, and it's very social too, right? None of us want to have a limitation and be ostracized or be like at a table or whatever, right? It's important that there's optionality and that's what you guys have brought to the market early on. We really are just trying to feed everyone unless you're really paying attention and focused on this, or you are yourself plant-based or gluten-free or all of the different things that we cater to. A lot of people have absolutely no idea. And we get letters regularly, consumer letters from people saying that our chicken pot pie is delicious. They've been eating it for years. So good. Still think they didn't check to make sure that it was. And at our drive-thru, lots of people get our burger. And (laughs) one of my best friend's dad's is like an avid carnivore and like refuses to eat vegetarian things like on principle and found out that he had been eating our veggie burgers at the drive-thru this whole time and that they were not meat and was like, how did you trick me? Like so upset. We don't plaster it all over everything as this is what it's about. We just want people to be able to feel like they can eat the way they've always eaten, but in a way that 
just naturally ends up being better for their health, better for the planet, better for animals, all of that, but in a not preachy way, if that makes sense. I eat kind of everything and I do love meat, but I also love vegetables. The next morning after I have a plant-based meal or a meatless meal, I always feel better. That's the truth of it. And it's kind of like working out where at first you're like, I don't know, the first mile is hard to run or whatever, but then you have to remind yourself, what is it gonna feel like afterwards? And I do have to discipline myself and remind myself that it's how you feel after, not just in the moment. Even though in the moment, you guys provide incredibly tasty alternatives and meals, but it's important to know how you feel afterwards. And that's an interesting sign that you can't ignore from your body. Yeah, we've had a lot of comments when we first opened the drive-thru because we're a block away from In-N-Out across the street from Chick-fil-A. There's Taco Bell, Burger King, all within a block of each other. We're in like one of those fast food clusters. The comment so often was, I feel so much better after eating a meal here. So what was it like opening up a fast food? It's just so funny. It's called fast food, but you know, you're actually redefining or reclaiming what fast food means because you opened a fast food. It was crazy. We did it because for 20 years, consumers have been slowly and built up over time asking us to do it because they didn't want to bring their kids to a junk food, fast food. One of those consumers being me who cried as a child because my parents wouldn't let me go through the McDonald's drive through line and get French fries like all my friends. And I felt so sad and so left out. And we want her to miss out on those 18 ingredients in the French fries. But <laughs> so we finally tried it and we didn't know what we were doing. It was a crazy success. It's one of the highest volume drive throughs in California. And we didn't expect it. So for the first few months, we had everyone in the office running down there just to help because we couldn't keep up. We had lines around the block of cars and the whole business had to convert to just supporting this one tiny drive-through because it was exploded. And it wasn't expected. We didn't expect it. Do you have just the one? How many do you have? Now we have that one. We have one in Marin County in Corte Madera that's beautiful. We have one at the airport at SFO. The fourth one is under construction as of two days ago in Roseville, which is near Sacramento. And then there's two sites that are being about to start being built in Southern California. Which terminal in SFO? I'm going to start traveling again, or I just started? Terminal 1, I think. Yeah, 1. Terminal 1. It's where Southwest and Alaska and now Delta is there. American, right? Or no, Delta? Yeah, American Mm -hmm. is there. Yeah. As long as it's in the American terminal, then I'm good because all I fly is American pretty much. So that's the other thing. Like who wants to get on a plane with a bacon cheeseburger? I mean, it's just gross, but this is an incredible alternative, obviously. This is absolutely an OG brand when it comes to this category. Late 80s, no internet. I think about the explosion of the Impossible Burgers and Beyond Meat and all this stuff. And there's been a little bit of backlash against those types of companies because of all the preservatives and all the stuff, like you mentioned the 18 ingredients, if you want to call them ingredients inside of the McDonald's French fries. How have you navigated around that? And what are your thoughts about that just in in general, in terms of the amount of preservatives that go into sometimes these alternative meats, if you will? And I know you guys are not in the alternative meat business. We make veggie burgers and they're terrific. And They're true veggie burgers and they're they're made out of vegetables. But you're not trying to make it taste like a meat burger, it tastes like black beans or beets or everything, all the vegetables you're putting into it. Right. We're happy that there's an alternative for people to try. I personally haven't enjoyed it when I've tried it, but it's great there's an alternative. And I think it's just a way for people to help transition away from meat eating. 
And we're happy to have any innovation and any focus that can be in the space of reducing our carbon footprint as a society in food. We're happy to have any innovation there and happy to have lots of people trying new things and new ways of doing it. That I do always feel hesitant about some of the technological solutions and that they do sometimes can do inadvertent harm while trying to help the problem at the same time. And there have been these things have come up over the years, lots of different sort of fads and different technologies and processes through our 30 years. And one of the things that I think has really helped us is just staying really true to what we started with rather than ever really focusing on what's this up and coming thing? What's this up and coming thing? And the big brands, that's what they're doing. They're focused on, they're putting tons and tons of money and research and marketing and all of that into this to sort of capitalize on consumer trends and all of that. And for us to constantly remember, because it can be easy to get swept up in that and, oh, all these people are focusing on this one thing right now, to remember why we started and what we're doing and staying pure to that, because there's a longevity to that that isn't there with a lot of these other things. I also, maybe this is just me being kind of, I don't know, it's a jaundiced or skeptical of you, but I think a lot of those types of companies too are chasing dollars and they're chasing the public offering and wealth, even though they might say they're trying to do everything that you're saying, or, you know, in terms of a better world and better planet. There is so much greenwashing. It is so hard to navigate through what claims are being made and how authentic they are. And my best friend who worked at Amy's for a long time, she's now a a marketing consultant. So she consults for a lot of food companies that do a lot of plant-based stuff and sustainable. And on the surface, she's like, oh, I'm so excited to be working with this company. She always calls me to vent. And she's like, they say all these claims. But then when I recommended like, oh, you know, what if we tried to do compostable plastic on this part of the packaging so that we could offset the carbon footprint here? And they're like, oh, no, 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 we're not even, it's like a non-starter, the conversation, because it's about the bottom line, ultimately. And the reason they're even going into this field is because they see consumer trends, research in this direction. If there's any other piece of that that then needs to be added to make it a truly ethical company, they're not really going the extra mile or the mile at all to do I'll, it. I'll tell you a funny story. Those early trade shows, they were attended by small health food stores in the early days, and they were people really behind the mission of healthy eating. And then suddenly it started changing, you know, and these people in suits would come by the booth. And my wife loves talking to people about our food and having them serve it. And I'm talking about, she came to me, who are these people in the gray suits? They have no interest in the food. What are they here for? I said, they're called investment bankers. She said, investment, what? <laughs> she had no idea what they were. And I said, it's just about business to them. So that kind of started to change the industry. And this literally is your baby. And I call Amy's my twin sister with the same name. I love that. It's no pressure that they named the business after you. And Amy, when did you officially really, I mean, I know you've been in the business pretty much your whole life, but when did you really start focusing? I read a quote somewhere that you're 80% mom, 20% Amy's. You're 80% Amy as a mom and 20% Amy as Amy's kitchen. But when did you really start getting involved in the company and being part of the fabric in the day to day? I think I was honestly the most part of the fabric of the day-to-day when I was the littlest, to be honest, because my parents brought me to the office almost every day. And so I was just around. And I was in every meeting. I was just, I, I would fold burritos on the line 
I think you can get around child labor laws if you're a family member, something like that. <laughs> yes, you can. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, at like age five, I was doing packaging. When she was about 20, I think, Sundance Channel did a program called Big Ideas for a Small Planet. They focused on the environmental area ahead of their time in a way. They focused on the environmental impact of businesses. And Amy was being interviewed and I overheard her from a distance. She was talking about us. And she said, Amy's can someday... I hope be a big enough company that it can actually be a force to change the planet. And that for me started, I think when I was about, I mean, being the mascot was something I did all along, being Amy, going to trade shows, people want to meet me, doing photo shoots. You are more than a mascot. You're an ambassador. Ambassador, exactly. Ambassador, mascot, spokesperson. But that role, even when I was little, before I had the knowledge of what was going on, an inconvenient truth came out when I was about 15. And I watched it. And that was when I think the real gravity of the predicament that we are in as a species and as a biosphere and as a ecosystem and the gravity of that situation sunk in for me and I really realized that we have to do something like we have to do something that was the moment when I started to see Amy's not so much as this like fun company that I'm a part of but more as a way to accomplish something since it's already there. And it became my passion, you know, sustainability became my passion. And Amy's was this great tool that was already existing and already doing so much good in this area that we could just build upon and build upon to really change the world. And I became really aware of how much money runs our government and our decisions as a country and lobbyists and industry. And so I suddenly was like, what if we and the natural food industry and other companies like us got so big and so profitable in doing good that we were the as strong of a counter lobby as the oil companies? What if we could reach this scale where we're not this little podunk hippie mom and company in our Birkenstocks, but really change the world. And that's when I started to get involved in a more serious way. Andy, are you wearing Birkenstocks right now? No, no. He's wearing New Balance. <laughs> no, Brooks. Actually. Brooks, yeah. <laughs> I had the CEO and president of Brooks on not long ago, actually. I mean, even though I'm a Hoka person myself, but... I'm still a Birkenstocks girl. I tried. She belongs to a group called the Hippie Moms of Sonoma County. <laughs> Her mother really was one. My mom's an OG hippie. I, I cannot claim that in the way that she does. Although I'm the one with armpit hair now, not her. <laughs> and I love that you just own that. That's amazing. So I don't know how to pivot from armpit hair to factories, but let's just do this for a second. <laughs> how hard is it, was it, because it's an ongoing process to rethink and redesign your factories so that they are more efficient, more sustainable and reducing your carbon footprint and all that? stuff. I mean, you don't have to do that. You already do so much in the actual product you're making, but you took it one step further and you're like, no, we need to also rethink our factories and where we make this amazing stuff. How hard was that? It is hard. And it's, it's ongoing. an ongoing process. We just came, as we mentioned from the sustainability meeting, and we we're very excited to hear that our first major plant is now zero waste, which is very exciting. How did you do that? 
A lot of work. A lot of work. You know, we have a lot of food waste, which, you know, like when we make tofu, you create something called okara, a lot of it. And it's a great feed for dairies. And so we supply to Strauss Organic Dairies here. Just got the employees super conscious about waste and being careful. And the waste reduction went way, way down. And then also, I mean, there's a lot of steps you have to take in terms of what you're actually purchasing and using in the plants because you have to use things that are then going to cost more money, but then that you don't have to just throw away at the end. A lot of it comes down to when you're in a purpose-driven business, you're already existing on extremely slim margins compared to companies that aren't just because of the choices of the ingredients that we put in our food, the way that it's made, the way that we treat our employees, the way that we pay our employees, all of that takes away from margin. And so everything is a constant battle to stay sustainable from a financial perspective, to stay profitable enough to keep going while slowly chipping away at every purpose and ethical driven concern and ambition that we have, while not being supported by a larger infrastructure in our economy that rewards that. We don't get any financial incentives, subsidies. Our financial system is set up to subsidize other industries, but not ones that are particularly good for the environment, although that's shifting with some energy subsidies and things like that. And I hope it shifts more, but it's hard to do it when it really just takes grit. Like you just have to keep Yeah, one of the things I've learned recently, I mean, the more and more I meet with our people, the more I realize that most of our employees work so hard because our business is so complex. We have a thousand organic ingredients arriving at three to four now, four different plants being assembled the way you would at home. The complexities and the difficulty takes a commitment that money would not give. They're doing it because they care. How much of the assembly of these products, for lack of a better word, is human versus machine? It sounds like it's very human driven. People go into shop when they go into Amy's plants that are in the food industry, because most food plants, there's a few people in there helping machines. And Amy's, there's a few machines Machines helping helping people. people. We have a thousand people in each of our three plants. So our food is cooked. We make roux, we marinate overnight. We do things just the way you do at home. Literally, we have giant kettles, just like you would have on your stove. We have a huge kettle deck, which is basically a giant stove with huge, you could fit like 10 people in each kettle. Yeah, the difference is a lot of food companies will send water through a pipe. They'll inject a modified food starch, then inject some flavoring, and then inject something else, and it plops, the sauce pops out. We start with the roux, we add the spices, we simmer, we go through all these steps. Each day we, on their Indian food, we roast our own spices, make our own garam masala. It's all authentic, real food. So it's a totally different way of food production than exists right now. And their buyers, they say, why can't you spend the money other food manufacturers are spending? We say the money's in the box. Because they want yeah. slotting fees to get our food on the shelves and things that other companies, promotional costs. We just don't have that money because we're actually trying to make and, something good. And we say consumers are voting with their dollars. Obviously, they sell. They love our product. They buy more of our product. The loyalty rate is much higher on Amy's than the other, any other brand. Why is that? It's because of the way we do things. And because of the way we do things, we don't have these huge marketing funds. No, definitely not. It's frustrating to me because there are so many actors, like you said, I think Amy mentioned it earlier, that are kind of greenwashing. And meanwhile, you guys are 
legitimately. And it's just, it would be tempting to take shortcuts and improve your margin by 10, 15 basis points, but you're not. I'm trying to think of an equivalent either in a different industry or another company that has the same kind of ethos. I know that Stonyfield, we talked about that off air. Nature's Path, they don't have the labor issue. Patagonia doesn't have their own facilities. It's such a personal thing versus Harold's important and whatever. But like, to me, it's really important to know like what you just said, there's no injection moldings, there's all these preservatives. You start with the roux first. I don't really think about that. Hopefully more of our listeners will be thinking about that as well when I'm shopping, even though the way you describe that makes me only want to eat from Amy's Kitchen and never anywhere else. And it is frustrating because we can't really figure out a way to communicate that on the packaging. So when I walk into the health food store, I pick up a package right next to ours and it says a lot of the same stuff on it. And I know them and I know that it's not the same, but it's like how... Yeah, like it says GMO free and yet there's some of the top 12, the dirty dozen most heavily sprayed crops in there. But there's all these little symbols on of a butterfly, right? They put a butterfly on it. And yet the food that's in there is killing the butterflies. The conventional ag there is killing the monarch. And they get to put a butterfly on their packaging. So that's our challenge. (laughs) That's our challenge. And, and it's frustrating. And it's not at the same time, because it's always been there. And we're not out here to try to be recognized necessarily. Like it's not about people getting it. We want to do it regardless. You might've seen that we were so shocked with this year in this company called profit.com does a brand relevance survey of 13,000. Emmys came out the number 21 brand in the United States with Apple and Nike and all these things. And the number one in the food industry. In terms of influence, it was like an imp- relevance, relevance, relevance and to, influence or something to, like that. I think I'm sure COVID was a big factor in elevating us because suddenly people were eating a lot more at home and they realized the value of our food and the difference. And everyone was like going into full apocalyptic mode and stocking their freezers and their garages full of Amy's frozen food and soups. So, I've been trying to avoid talking about COVID because I'm just, I think we're all sick of it. But I just want to touch on that a second. So I had King Arthur uh, Flower Company on. We use so much of their stuff. And they're the oldest flower baking company in the United States. They're Martha Washington's company, right? And we were talking about the surge in demand because there's so much baking going on. I am guilty of that. You know, my son's gluten-free. I bought every single King Arthur's like gluten-free baking mix off the shelves at the beginning of COVID to make him happy with cakes and stuff when he couldn't go see his friends. You were dealing with COVID from a business standpoint and you had wildfires. I mean, it was like Armageddon, right? It was apocalyptic. Talk a little bit about what the last year and a half has been like and how you managed through it. Back in February, when the stories were coming, COVID was coming and China was raging, And our executives didn't really fully believe it. Amy somehow had the insight of what was coming. And she told us what was coming, that we needed to do all the precautions we could. So this was before we had a case in the United States. We said not to. We got masks. I was endless phone calls to contacts in China. We got masks. We got goggles. We got thousands and thousands of feet of plastic dividers spaced out people six feet apart, stopped making products where people had to be close together. And as a result, we never had a single case of contagion in any of our plants. Now, one of my other family-owned businesses I called and 
she said, and I called there in the Central Valley, and she said, I called my congressman, and he said, this is no big deal. Don't worry about it. They were closed three months later with hundreds of cases and many deaths. Because you'd think a factory plant environment, right? It's a super spreader environment. Thousands of people working in close quarters in an indoor environment would be a place for mega spread. And I think it was the pessimist in me, or maybe it's my anxiety, but I was really paying close attention to what was happening. And so I just, in other countries, and everyone was still saying, it's never going to happen here. You know, half the country was still saying it was a hoax. And I told our executive team that we had to send home everybody over 65, send home everybody who didn't need to be there. Anyone with underlying conditions, even asthma, we sent home all of our employees. It was a big percentage of our employees. And they told me, they said, we will not recover from this financially if we do this. And I said, they said, this is going to kill the company if we take all these precautions. And I said, I would rather kill the company than a single employee. That's incredible. And to be honest with you, I might have been one of those executives. I'm like, eh, give it some time. I don't know. (laughs) Another month it'll be gone. (laughs) You just don't know. But again, it's the lesson there is it's better to be prepared than to be sorry. And you were definitely prepared. It's also a little healthy to be slightly paranoid, just a little bit. Because it drives preparation. Now, sometimes it could drive you crazy. It's not a bad thing. So that was December? This was in January, February. Before the big lockdown, before the big shutdown. Before we had a lockdown, there was nothing. Schools were still open. Everything was still going on. And our employees even thought we were like... But we have a lot of Latino employees and they did get COVID. A lot of them not at work, not a single case of work. But if they came into work unknowing and then they found out later we had to send everyone who came in contact with them home. So it was a big impact on our workforce. We were out probably 15% of our people most of this year. And at the same time, demand increased dramatically. So it was counteracting things. So our fill rate was not very good. But at the end of it, we did such a good job on vaccinations, particularly here in California. We were able to set up our own vaccine center next to the plant. We had some offices next door. And one of the employees' wives was a doctor and our One of our attorneys had worked so closely with the county on managing COVID that they had trust in us. So we set up our own vaccine center and we got 94% vaccination rate among our plant employees. I think it's almost 97%. Oh, by now, now. we got a higher rate of vaccination among our plant employees than our office employees, actually. How did you do that? Because obviously you didn't mandate it. Did you provide incentives or is it just education and trust and relationships? It's all about trusting. You know, trust. Amy did the video. I, I, and went, I, did video. I went and got the first shot. Video people, seeing that the people who that are running the company and that they care about are feel safe enough to do this. And also just, we already had an employee health centers, right? We provide our own health care on site to our primary yeah. care. So we have already built and in which we help people do proactive care about blood pressure and all these things. We already have a relationship of trust with our employees that they feel like their health care is something that we're constantly considering. And so it was an easy next step for them to trust that getting a vaccine through our clinic would be something that would be safe. On your own dime, on your own company's investment, you have healthcare professionals at all of your sites providing primary care services to your employees. That's right. And to their families. And to their families. For no cost. In addition to traditional kind of catastrophic healthcare insurance coverage. 
Yeah, they don't pay full health insurance. Yeah, as well. and so if they need to go to a, you know, get, get and cancer. And we, we help them get to a specialist if it's that kind mm-hmm. of thing. A big motivation for that is, you know, a lot of our employees are not English speaking, feel a lot of fear of the medical system. And so we have complete bilingual medical care. And so a lot of people, a lot of our employees, when we set up our own health system, this is the first time they had ever been to a primary care physician in their life. They'd only done reactive care, like an emergency scenario, really creating that safe space within their own work environment to get that care in their own language. And their annual wellness visit, they get an hour with a doctor and then check other things that are half an hour. The governor of Oregon visited two weeks ago our plant in Medford, and she got a tour of the healthcare clinic. And she said, you do what? You do what? She was just in shock of all the uh, time that these people get to spend with their care provider. That's incredible. I've actually been to Medford once years ago. <laughs> I was dating a woman there. It didn't work out. Almost died on the Siskiyous. Is that how you say it? That mountain range? Black ice. It was bad. Beautiful part of the country. So that is absolutely incredible. And was that always the case? Or was that from day one? Or is as you grew, you decided that's going to be part of your ethos and part of your culture? I don't 10, know, maybe 10 or 12 10 years or 12 ago. 12 years we started that. We also have scholarships for our employees' children. That is a beautiful thing to watch these children of employees that may not speak much English. And these kids are so motivated and so bright. Yeah, watching the second generation, you know, second generation families and and the amazing things that these kids are accomplishing. And many of them coming back to Amy's to work in higher level management positions. And it's been really cool. Yeah, we had some executives from B of A attend one of those, and the guy was sitting there crying. I mean, even though the healthcare, we've always had health insurance, but having our own healthcare has not been the whole time. But maybe it's 15 years. 15 years, yeah. yeah. The ethos behind that is that my parents, from day one, one of their most important things was we have to take care of our employees and not then spills out in all these different ways. In the first way you think of it is just like, oh, let's create a nice work environment. And then it's like, well, people need healthcare because the government is failing in that regard. So, and then people need support when fires are coming through or when COVID hits. So in a strange way, partly because we live in a, in a system and in a country without great social net for people and a great support system, we've had to fill that role in a lot of ways. And I would love it if if we lived in a society and in a community where those roles were filled by the government. But if it's not, it's it's sort of a necessity that we need to take on. Amy, you're only 30. No, I'm 33. Okay. So Andy, good job. Because Amy speaks well wise beyond her years. I mean, I feel like you should run for public office, but don't do that because don't do that. I'm just blown away. I'm so impressed. And everything that you're saying is totally resonant. If people need housing or healthcare, we can just do it because we have the freedom to do it within our business, you know, so it, I would get frustrated. People aren't it. very successful at making that conversion <laughs> yeah. from business to politics, as we've recently seen, you know. I think there's a little bit of a illusion of, you know, this notion of the intersectionality between profit and purpose. You do have to sacrifice and or reallocate that profit in order to fulfill the purpose. You can't really have both in a fulsome way. We make plenty. Like, don't get me wrong. We're totally comfortable. We're totally transparent with our financials, with our employees the other day. And that, but we haven't always given all the numbers. The other day, we give all these numbers. And I thought, oh, my God, they're probably thinking, what happens to all these? 
what is profit? And I said, you know, there's no 320-foot yacht coming. Mm-hmm. This money all goes back into the company to support the company. You strike me as like a 110-foot yacht guy anyway, not 320. It's too much. No, too he big. has a paddleboard, stand-up paddleboard. That's good, where a, it's at. A good one. Yeah, he has a really nice stand-up paddleboard. His, that's splurge. I just bought a couple of sups recently and I love it. It's so, so great. I mean, I'm more of a surface swimmer, but supping is good too. It's good for your core. I swim most every day. My big vehicular splurge recently was an electric bicycle that has like space for groceries and a kid on the back. And so you can like- That's the big not... fat out here. Yeah. Electric bike. Yeah. I'm not a fan of the electric bike, but Andy, you'll appreciate my, I'll show you my swimmer tattoo. No one can see it, but Andy can. Oh, Cool. My wife says those are just all the Iron Man hairs. I need one more and then I'll be done. But yeah, I find swimming, I know, Andy, you have a background and you've done a lot of meditation and such, but I find the motion of water and swimming to both bring me attention and intention. And I find it super meditative. And I don't know if you find the same thing. And I find that now I'm trying to meditate, not meditate, sorry, swim in the evening because it just gets rid of a lot of the tensions of the day. And it's like, relaxes you and you just feel so much better. I knew I'd like you, but now I like you even more because you're a swimmer. I'm a swimmer as well. We count me in a swimmer club. You're interrupting our bromance here, Amy. I don't know. Swimmers too. <laughs> I know, I know. But just mobility in general is so important because I think it helps with being mindful and finding that balance. And I think all too often people forget that. So yeah, eating healthfully, understanding what you're putting into your body is your body, but also making sure that you're moving your body is equally as important. I'm going to guess that your employee attrition rate is very low or your retention rate is quite high. Well, it depends on which plant, but here in Santa Rosa, I think our average employee has been with us 17 years. A year ago, all five of our first five employees were with us. Now a couple have retired in the last year. That's incredible. So those five employees saw Amy as a baby. And those other average, those people who have been there 17 years, remember Amy as a teenager, which I'm sure was interesting. Most people came when I was five, four to seven, I would feel like. So people still are like, every time I see them, oh, I remember when you used to run into the office and sit on my lap and ask to play computer games. And are you invited to some of these, your employees' family events and things like that? It sounds like you're part of the fabric of their lives as well. Pre-COVID, yeah. I think it's beautiful. I think it's amazing. I always say one of the best things ever is when I get to see folks that join me very, very young. I see them go through those life stages. They get married and then they have children. And I get to see that and see them develop and grow. And that is beautiful because that is life. Everything else is just work, but that's life. Yeah, I just had one-on-one with our head of sourcing and just talking about his kids. And I've seen them grow up over the Mm -hmm. last 16 years from little kids to probably from three to seven, and now some of them are medical school, and it's just beautiful, the whole thing. And a lot of the employees talk about how sort of it's a trip for them to go from me being the little kid running around the office in diapers to being someone that now is helping set direction and that they look to for things. And, you know, that transition has been interesting as I sort of grow up and individuate as a human from my parents, individuate from the company, come back with my own ideas, and how to change that role, you know, of being the cute little girl that makes everyone smile to being an important strategic and member of the company has been something we've all negotiated over the years. And do you one day want your son to be part of the company as well? 
I do not if he does not want to. I really want to be intentional. I'm not having him do photo shoots in the way that I did. And I'm trying to protect him a little bit from completely unintentional and well-intentioned pressure and struggle (laughs) that I went through growing up that they didn't anticipate and didn't really think about, but it was hard in certain moments. And I, and I'm trying to be intentional about protecting him from those things in the ways that I can. I didn't mean to start like a family therapy session or anything. I was just, (laughs) 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 look, I have a lot of friends who some opted to stay in the family business and others charted their own path. And the ones who did charted their own kind of exponential scaled path that's inside that business. They imprinted, they marked in the same way that you're doing. And I think that's amazing. But you're right. You should never push. It's all about optionality. And to be clear, they never pushed explicitly. Although my mom did say, see, this is why we can never sell the business, Amy. But they didn't push it explicitly. It was more of a reality of the situation, which is that we don't want to sell because as soon as you sell it becomes about the bottom line. It loses the ability to make decisions that forfeit profit for purpose. I'm the only child. And so if we want to keep the business the way that it is and maintain it private and purposeful, there is really only one person who can do that. Only in favorite child. Yeah, exactly. Best child. I totally get that. And look, we've seen Unilever bought Ben and Jerry's, and I think Ben and Jerry's was a catalyst for change inside of Unilever. But at the same time, as Unilever, and I give them a lot of credit for leaving Ben and Jerry's alone for the most part, they're still part of a large, huge, global, publicly traded company that has a responsibility to deliver certain levels of returns to its shareholders. There's always that pressure, always that pressure. And sometimes you can't make the best decisions that are purpose-based if you are owned by others and there's financial considerations. I understand that. I do. And I respect that. I really do. And I mean, and the other thing that I often think about is like, my parents could have started like a tire business and called it Amy's and it would be so unaligned with who I am and what I care about as much as it's like, well, there's pressure, but it's also, it's a gift, right? At the same time, which is that there's this company that also really aligns with who I am and what I care about in the world that happens to also bear my name. It worked out. Well, it would be an organic, gluten-free rubber tire business, of course. Yeah, it would be like totally natural, recycled. Compostable in 30 days. Exactly, tires. Which would mean that you would make a shit ton of money because tires wouldn't last that long. (laughs) So it'd be great. It'd be a good business. Maybe that can be a subsidiary. We'll work on that. And I'll have you back on in five years when you talk about that. Andy and Amy, it was so much fun having you on. And I feel like the love and the warmth, like I don't oftentimes. And I just think it's really special and wonderful. And I love the stories. And I just feel like we could be talking for hours and hours, but we'll stop it at 58 minutes, just under an hour. And I'm sure all of our listeners, all 10 of them, just kidding, 20, I'm sure they're going to love this as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it and everything you've brought into the world. And especially Amy, who you brought into the world, because I think that is the greatest gift. So thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much for having us. It was a real pleasure to be here. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quitkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. 
Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. Thank <laughs> you.